you all would turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3. We'll be looking at uh, verses 1 to 16, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 to 16. Here we see a prayer that is a song. There's a musical notation in verse 1, Shagayanath, and then we also see Selah in verses 3 and 9, so this is something of a song here. That's a prayer given to encourage and help God's people as they're awaiting Babylon's attack. So they know the enemy's coming. The enemy is going to defeat. They're awaiting that. They're going to be taken off the exile. They're fearful of that. And then they have hope for God's promise of return. And this song is meant to give or to be given to them to sing throughout all that. This is a song meant to sustain God's people as they await uh, hard times ahead. That's true, isn't it? Song helps in hard times. Singing helps in hard times. We have an entire book of the Bible, Psalms, given to us for that. This is that kind of chapter. A psalm, a song meant to be sung for God's people when they're in trouble or about to be. So I hope we can uh, use it for such like that. Let me read. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the Shigayanath. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the everlasting mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kishon in affliction, the lands, or the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Say, La, you split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed, the raging waters swept on, the deep. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. 
Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Let's pray. Father, our eyes long for your salvation, for the fulfillment of all of your righteous promises. So please deal with us now according to your steadfast love and teach us your statutes. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, this is a prayer song to strengthen faith as God's fatherly discipline comes among his people. God loves his people as a father, and as any good father, he disciplines his people for their sin. That's what the book of Habakkuk is about. He begins this book with a call for God to not idly stand by as his people go further and further into sin. God tells him that he is going to judge his people for their sin. Judging always begins with the household of God. He's going to bring Babylon, that terrifying, awful nation against them. Habakkuk complains that God would use a worse nation to judge his people. And God then responds in chapter 2 saying, Trust me, I'll destroy Babylon. I know their sin. I'll bring judgment on them. And this then is a song of faith waiting for that judgment to call where Habakkuk takes time to review specific instances in the Old Testament where God has redeemed his people from their enemies, destroying their enemies, and saving his people. That's the song. It's an Old Testament poetic reminder of God's past dealings of faithfulness. And Habakkuk is afraid. Look at verse 2 and verse 16. I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. I hear, in verse 16, and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. I love the beauty of God's word, the poetic imagery. Habakkuk is terrified. He is absolutely terrified at the coming discipline of God. He's afraid. And so, uh, it is not unspiritual to be afraid, to fear God's discipline. And yet, in the midst of the fear of God, he has faith that God will be merciful in your wrath. Remember mercy. I think this is a good way to pray. In your wrath, remember mercy. In your wrath, O oh God, against our nation. In your wrath against your church, which has largely departed from true biblical faith. In your wrath, your deserved wrath, please remember mercy. And so in verses 3 to 15, Habakkuk recounts God's mercy. And one way to think about these verses is Babylon's army is coming, but God's army is infinitely greater. That's what's going on in verses 3 to 15. He remembers all of the instances where God in heaven soundly destroyed the enemies of God's people. We'll see in uh, verse 3. 
Taman and Mount Paran are in the area of Mount Sinai. Habakkuk wants to bring to memory for God's people God's destruction of Egypt. God's delivering them up to Mount Sinai where they met with God. He wants them to remember the plagues in verse 5, that pestilence goes before him, plague follows at his heel. He wants them to remember the dividing of the Red Sea and the Jordan River was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord, in verse 8. He wants them to remember the destruction of the nations in the promised land. In Joshua, verse 11, the sun and the moon standing still. Verse 12, he threshed the nations in anger. So he wants to bring to mind for God's people all of the past instances of God saving his people from enemies that were much stronger than them. This is one way to consider the truth of the Bible. This is the Bible in some, isn't it? God's people, fearful and afraid, under his discipline, deservedly so, and yet crying out to God, and God delivering them in miraculous, awesome ways that then get put to song so that future generations can remember the past deeds of God's faithfulness. This is the Bible from cover to cover. Over and over and over and over again, culminating, of course, in redemption from the wrath of God by the wrath of God being poured out on the Son of God and his rising from the dead for our salvation. Pointing us then to the remembrance that he'll do it again in the future. When his sons come back, you and I will not suffer the just eternal wrath of God, but be delivered from it from Christ. That's the Bible in sum. This is it. And yet, while we live on this earth, in these bodies, with sin, we should fear God. Bone-rattling fear. Bone-rattling fear. While waiting for deliverance. One of the things I want to communicate to you, maybe the main thing is, Habakkuk's hope, his faith in the midst of the fearful coming judgment of God, are all of the past, actual, historical, true events where God saved his people that are recorded in the inspired, holy, eternal word of God. Habakkuk wrote this song for the purpose of hope while waiting for God's deliverance. This is always needed. This is always needed. This will always be needed for you. Somebody has once quipped that you're either about to go into suffering, you're in suffering, or you just came out of it. And, and so this kind of song is constantly needed to be sung to remind us that God is faithful God is for us. God will deliver us. He's done it before. He'll do it again. And so as Dennis was praying, I was getting disheartened as he went through all of the things that so many people are struggling with in our church. You need this song, don't you? Don't you need this song? Don't you tremble for whatever God has for you? The discipline that's coming on the church and our nation or whatever is going on in your life, doesn't that 
make you fearful, shouldn't it? And don't you need to sing then for God's faithfulness? Let me point out a few specific instances of historic remembrance that Habakkuk is singing. And one of the things that Habakkuk does in these verses is say things with such imagery to help our imaginations grab hold of the truth of God's incredible power and majesty and sovereign control over all things. So verses 3 to 15 are recounting historical, actual facts of God's deliverance of saving work. And so this is one thing. Our Christian hope is based on historical fact. Christianity is not a mythical religion in this way. It's it's not story. It's fact. These things happened. Their names are names of real people. The events are real events that really took place in real time. And God's miraculous provision of salvation that defy human explanation really happened. And I want to point out a few of them for you. Look at verse 3 again. Taman and Mount Paran are in the area of Mount Sinai. Habakkuk is going back to God's coming down in unspeakable, glorious magnificence such that the people trembled. But God came down on the mountain so that they could not possibly doubt that he is the one true living God and that if he's their God, no other nation can stand against them. God came down in such terrifying, glorious greatness so that they would know that he would protect them. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. All they could see, all that consumed their sight, their hearing, their being was God's great glory on Mount Sinai that shook the mountains. His light in verse 4 was like God grabbing the sun And shining it in their face. And note what it says at the end of verse 4. That God was holding back the full force of his glory. He was veiling it. That was just a glimpse. That whatever God revealed on Mount Sinai that actually shook a mountain, that thundered, that rocked it, that caused the people to say to Moses, I don't want any part of this. That was just like, you know, seeing the sun through a welding helmet. It was just a little, little glimpse. And so God is recording in Scripture a remembrance on God's people that he, this great, powerful, mighty God, delivered them, conquering an incredibly greater nation than they, by his might, with great miracles, plagues, through a sea, 
so that the hearts and minds of his people in Habakkuk's day do not doubt that God will do it again. Look at verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on horses on your chariot of salvation? Again, a poetical, imaginative way to call God's people back to the Red Sea. God's chariots, the chariots that God rides upon, divides the sea, allows God's people to walk through on dry land, and then drowns all the Pharaoh warriors in their chariots. God's chariots are stronger than Pharaoh's. He swallowed up their enemies. God commands all nature. The wind and the water obey him. God uses his sovereign power over all things for the sake of saving his people. That's the testimony, isn't it? God purposes his sovereign, unstoppable power to save his people miraculously. And so Habakkuk includes that in his song to remind his people that God will do it again. Look at verse 11. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. What is that, kids? What historical event in the Bible does that bring your memory back to when the sun and the moon stood still? Double points if you can know chapter or book and chapter. Anybody? Kids? What? Nobody? Somebody say it? Somebody said Joshua. Who said it? Jody. (laughs) Yeah, Joshua 10. Joshua and the people were enabled by God, by his power, to begin to defeat the enemies. Joshua prayed that the sun would stand still so they could defeat them all the way. And God did it. God lengthened the day in answer to prayer. And Saul, in verses 12 to 14, sing of this defeat. And so we have these historical realities that God's people sing in song, reminding them that right now in the present and the future, God is the same God. God will do it again. God uses all of his sovereign power to deliver his people from their enemies that God has ordained for their discipline. So learn two things here, brothers and sisters. Whatever God is doing in the world, it is for our discipline. It is for your discipline. And God will never, ever lose his people. God's army is infinitely stronger than anything on earth and nothing and no one can stand against us. So what can you learn from this? 
one of the, the simplest things, the simplest applications for you is you need to know the word of God. You must, 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 if you're going to have Christian hope in this difficult day or for the future difficult day, you have to know what God has done before as written in the eternally inspired pages of Holy Scripture. Another way to say it is, way too often, you're far too shaken because you just don't know the Bible very well. And you are very easily given to many conspiracy theories and many things that aren't true that shake you to the core because you just do not know the history that God has given you through his prophets and apostles, recording all that he has done to save his people time after time after time. Scripture records historically true events, not stories, not myths, but actual events for our sake. Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that what they recorded long ago was meant for you, and we don't know it. We don't know it. You know in great detail how the election was stolen from Donald Trump. You know the number of votes and the number of precincts. You know them inside and out, but you don't know what happened in Joshua 10. Right? You invest your life in knowing these things, but you don't know the word of God like that. You know the latest greatest from your closest friends on Facebook. But how many of you have learned to battle the reality of the winter blahs, of seasonal affective disorder, because you know the word of God? So that's the great takeaway from here. Give yourself to reading Scripture. We're going through life together in our small groups. I believe in our last session, or maybe two sessions ago, we talked about reading through the entire Bible consecutively, often with a family. You know, not just reading a verse, but reading a chapter, a chunk, and just going right through the Bible. It's Pine Grove, many of us take on an annual Bible program where you read through the entire Bible in a year. We have Bible studies, Sunday school, all for the sake of in 10 years of reading through the Bible once a year, of reading through it consecutively with your family, of coming and hearing the word preached. Imagine what that will help you in 10 years to stand when you are shaken. I think that's the main takeaway here. Brothers and sisters, Please know the word of God. Martin Luther in the Reformation said that an elderly, old, frail woman who knew scripture knew more than 10 popes. <laughs> this is what God has given you, brothers and sisters. His eternally inspired, unfailing, unerring 
unstoppable word, in order that you may live with faith in him in the day of trouble. I want to, again, commend psalms for times of trouble to learn to sing them. This summer, we're going to preach through another 10 psalms in the summer. Last summer, we did Psalm 1 through 10. This summer, we're going to do 11 through 20, and we're going to try to have a song for each psalm. What, what more will you need when you come into trouble? So that's the first and main thing. Within that, though, let me give you a second application. The main thing that Habakkuk here recounts is God's majesty and power revealed in his terrible judgments against the wicked. A year ago, we were just learning about COVID. And one of the reports around this then unknown virus was connecting it to past pandemics and plagues. How many of you had heard of the Spanish flu of 1920 before last March? And then last March, you learned of the Spanish flu, and I don't remember the number of deaths in that year, a couple million if I remember right. It was a big deal. It really devastated certain cities and our nation as a large. It was a bad thing. And then some were talking about the plagues in earlier history that Estimates up to 50% of entire Europe died. I'm reading a book about Thomas Cromwell. He was the closest advisor to um, King Henry VIII. And one of the plagues that would always come to London in the summer was called the sweating sickness. Basically, you got it, and the next day you were dead. Terrified. And so last year at this time, we were hearing things like this, weren't we? And we didn't know what this was. And that report brought fear. Is this going to be like the Spanish flu of 1920? Is this worse than that and going to be like plagues of old where you get it and you're dead? And so those reports brought fear. They brought fear. And so Habakkuk is remembering these reports of God, I have heard the report of you in your work, O Lord, and I fear it. He remembers the wrath of God in ages past, and it teaches him to fear God now. Turn with me, if you would, back to Exodus 34. There are really two things to know about God revealed in Scripture. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Thanks for turning with me. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. There's a little annotation there. The thousands there isn't a, 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 a quantity. It's thousand generations. Keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations, forgiving 
Iniquity, transgression, and sin. Isn't that good news? The mercy of God. We have to know the mercy of God, brothers and sisters. We have to know that God is rich in mercy, don't we? That he is a God of eternal love. That he is patient and kind and gentle. He's a shepherd that carries lambs in his arms. He's like a mother hen that gathers the weak under her wings to protect them. He is merciful. And a God who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He is a God of uncountable mercy and he is a God of severe wrath and judgment. Those are the only two things to know about God in Scripture. And I think a profound failure of the modern evangelical church is to concentrate exclusively on one to the neglect completely of the other. We do not fear God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And because we do not know the fear of God, we really do not know the mercy of God. Paul tells the Roman Christians in Romans chapter 11, note then the kindness and the, does anybody know it? The severity of God. You Christians only sing Psalm 23. Right? That's what we do. Note only the kindness of God. God is kind. God is love. God is mercy. God is a heavenly puddle of fluffy cotton candy. He'll never say no to you. He'll never discipline you. He'll just be nice to you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. So have faith to know the past judgments of God. Have faith to sing of them so that you might know of the present consideration. I think this motivates evangelism, by the way. Because we realize that people that we know and love will go to hell apart from Christ. And we fear God's judgment. We know the terrors of it because we know the true realities in the Bible. And so we are motivated to pray and to proclaim Christ to them. Because without Christ, they will perish eternally under the wrath of God. In fact, the wrath of God is on them right now if they are apart from Christ. And so as I said last week, the American church is under the discipline of God. Of course we are. The church is filled with unconverted church members who make life a living hell for people who really want to live for Jesus. And God is angry at the church for not doing anything about it. He is a father. He will not stand idly by and watch it. The problem isn't that the church is bickering and doesn't get along the problem is that the church won't have the fight it needs to have. That we won't call false teachers false teachers. That we won't say Beth Moore is now a wolf and should be avoided at all costs. 
She used to teach right, and now she's wrong. We won't do it anymore because we got to play nice because we do not know anything about the wrath of God anymore. So we give ourselves to those who have big names and speak at big conferences and write big songs and best-selling books but have departed the faith because they love the world. And Habakkuk sings of the past judgments and deliverances of God for the present and future people of God to learn from them that God is their God. His army is infinitely bigger than the world's army and God's people will be kept for an eternal salvation. And of course, this all reminds us of Christ. It should. The place where we see the kindness and severity of God most clearly is in the cross. If you want to know how much God hates sin and how God will deal with sinners in their sin, look no further than the wrath he poured out on his own son who bore our sin in himself on the cross. And if you want to know the unthinkable kindness and mercy of God towards you, then look at the cross where God made him to be no sin sin for us so that we could be counted as righteous before him. And Christ's death and resurrection is a historical fact. It really happened. God's son really was born of a virgin. He really did live a human life in every way as both God and man. He really did never sin. And he really was staked to a cross where your sin was really counted on him and he suffered the penalty of God under God's judgment. He did really die. He was really buried in a tomb. And he did really walk out of that tomb alive forevermore. And so... He is our great high priest through which we have constant access to our Father in heaven before whom you can bring anything going on in your life at any time. All of your complaints, all of your fears, all of your anger, all of your disappointment, all of your losses, all of your griefs, all of your joys, all of your successes, all of it. It's not a fairy tale. It's not just an idea. It's not a great metaphor. It's historical reality. And even more, his son dwells at the right hand of God from whence he will come to judge living and the dead and to save his people forevermore to his father. And your and my hope is built on nothing less than that blood and righteousness that Jesus spilled, 
We dare not trust ourselves, even at our sweetest, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Even when God's faith seems veiled because of our sin and his fatherly displeasure and deserved discipline is upon us, we can rest on his unchanging grace. He has covenanted with us in the blood of his Son, such that even when all around us everything gives way, he then is your only hope and stay. Your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness because he actually did shed his blood and you actually are counted righteousness, righteous with the righteousness of Christ from God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us now to have faith for these things, to have faith to see you in your kindness, your unthinkable kindness towards us and in your severity, to know that you are indeed the Lord God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that you keep steadfast love, covenant love to a thousand generations, that you forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, but you do not clear the guilty. And so teach us to sing songs like this, O God, to see you as you have revealed yourself in Scripture, in these true events, as a God of unthinkable mercy and severe judgment. And give us faith then to endure in this difficult day. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the charge is this. There are two takeaways from this text. Read your Bible and pray. In order to read your Bible, you'll need to have a plan. And so if you're not regularly reading your Bible, start small. How many times we get this idea, I'm going to read the Bible and I'm going to do it a half hour a day. And don't do that. You'll probably do it for a a short time and then stop doing it. And so if you're not reading at all, just start a few minutes, a few times a week and build from there. If you are reading, keep it up. Keep going. Don't stop. Second, Habakkuk is about prayer. Chapter 3 is the third prayer in three chapters. And so call on God, brothers and sisters. Pour out your hearts to him. Lift up whatever is going on in your life. Plead with him. Um, Please call on him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you the peace that he's purchased with himself and with each other. In Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. One last thing. We have a number of you that have started coming from the Eagle River area. Jack Finlay, can you go like this? Higher. You're taller. Give him one of these. Jack is right in the middle. Jack is going to remain right in the middle. And he would like to meet you all because he lives up there. And they got a small group up there anyways. He would like to make your acquaintance. If you're from the Eagle River area, started coming, meet Jack there. All right, God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord. Love you.